What's happening in the world coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. It's the deadline for all 19 defendants in the Georgia election indictment. We have the latest on the ground and how the former president has reacted since his surrender last evening. Pennsylvania is in the hot seat. A watchdog group is accusing the Keystone State of violating federal election rules. With nearly 400 still missing in the devastating Maui fires, police publish a list of names put together by the FBI. The fentanyl crisis is ravaging America, but behind the scenes are brave souls helping opioid addicts recover. We'll hear their hopeful testimony. It's just weeks away from the 2023 NTD International Classical Chinese Dance Competition. We spoke to one of the judges to learn more about the ancient art form and what the competition is looking for. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers, our top news. It's the deadline for all 19 defendants to surrender to a Georgia jail in relation to criminal charges for challenging the 2020 presidential election results. All 19 have surrendered, including the former president who came yesterday evening. For more on this unprecedented moment in American history, I spoke with Epoch Times reporter Janice Heisel. Janice Heisel, thank you for joining us. Give us the details about what unfolded at the Fulton County Jail yesterday evening. Well, yesterday, all day long, people were showing up, a lot of media, obviously, but as well as a whole bunch of Trump supporters. There were a few Trump protesters, anti-Trump uh, as well at the jail. But then um, the airspace around the Fulton County Jail was closed around 6.45 p.m. Eastern so that uh, the former president's airplane could come into the area. And then he did surrender to the authorities there at the Fulton County Jail. And he was, uh, he took a mugshot as well. Yes, and actually, you know, maybe a lot of people would think that a mugshot would be kind of a mark of shame, but almost immediately, uh, the former president did a couple of very interesting things. As soon as that mugshot was available, he not only made T-shirts available uh, saying never surrender with his mugshot on it, but also went back on Twitter, which is now known as X, for the first time since January of 2021. And at last check, that particular post had over 100 million views, as far as I can recall. And how have Trump supporters been reacting to this mugshot? Well, it's a mixture. Um, of course, people who do not like former President Trump are kind of, you know, parading it out there like a trophy. Uh, people who are supporting the former president are saying, isn't this just shameful? But then there are a lot of kind of funny memes that are floating around as well, uh, saying things that he looks totally gangsta, you know, like he looks really tough and you shouldn't mess with this man is the kind of expression on his face that a lot of people are talking about. And Janice, House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan launched an investigation into the prosecution for this case yesterday. Why? Well, the House Judiciary Committee, which he heads, wants to know whether any federal funds were used to prosecute former President Trump. They're also concerned about connections between uh, the prosecutor, Faye Willis, and Democrat causes, as well as the communication that she may have coordinated with 
President Biden's Department of Justice and Jack Smith, who is the special counsel handling the federal cases against former President Trump. There's a lot to look at there. And Georgia State Senator Colton Moore called for a special session in the state Congress there to consider investigating Ms. Willis's actions as well. Uh, what's he saying about this? Well, Senator Moore actually showed up outside of the Fulton County Jail and shot a video of himself describing how concerned he is about the effect on democracy, as well as he doesn't feel that taxpayers in Georgia want their money used to go after a former president for challenging an election when violent crime in the Fulton County area is apparently pretty rampant. We're talking murders and just really horrible things happening to people that they say are not being prosecuted. And he, he thinks she needs to be investigated for political motivation. Epic Times reporter Janice Heisel, thank you very much. Thank you. A federal judge has tossed a lawsuit from the Republican National Committee. It accused Google of filtering the RNC's campaign emails to Gmail users' spam folders. The RNC filed the lawsuit last October and claimed the popular search engine was discriminating against it for its political views. The committee argued that filtering could hurt its fundraising efforts. Google previously denied Republican criticism that spam filters are biased against conservatives. In his ruling, the U.S. District Court judge wrote the RNC had not, quote, sufficiently pled that Google acted in bad faith by filtering their messages into spam folders. The judge also wrote that Google was protected under a federal statute that shields Internet companies over third-party content they host. The judge gave the RNC a chance to amend the lawsuit. An election watchdog group called Pennsylvania Fair Elections is accusing the Pennsylvania Department of State of violating federal election rules. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the case. The watchdog group contends that the department is not complying with the Help America Vote Act, or HAVA. This because it doesn't make overseas voters show ID when they register to vote. HAVA is a 2002 law that dictates how elections should be run. It stipulates that the Secretary of State must verify that an applicant's driver's license or social security number matches their official records before allowing them to vote. But the group says that in 2018, the Pennsylvania Department of State said that non-matching numbers are not sufficient grounds to reject a voter application. The watchdog group says Pennsylvania is breaking another election law called the Uniformed and Overseas Citizens Absentee Voting Act. That law lets military and other citizens living abroad vote in U.S. elections. PA Fair Elections says Pennsylvania is sending out ballots to such voters before checking their IDs, which it says is against the rules. Attorney Eric Cardell says progressive groups are pushing Pennsylvania election officials to break the rules. He's drawing attention to the concern about overseas voters who may or may not be citizens deciding close elections. In the past, overseas voters were often called military voters, but the watchdog group says only around 7,000 of the approximately 27,000 overseas votes from Pennsylvania in the 2020 November election were connected to the military. The Pennsylvania Department of State did not respond to a request for comment. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD reached out to the Pennsylvania Department of State for comment, but we did not hear back before broadcast. 
More on voting. North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper vetoed an election bill yesterday. The Republican-led legislation would make sweeping changes to the state's voting laws. Here's Cooper explaining his decision. This attack has nothing to do with election security and everything to do with keeping and gaining power. The veto is likely to be overridden by the state's GOP-controlled General Assembly. Senate Bill 747 was passed last week. It would eliminate a three-day grace period for receiving absentee ballots and would extend the period for challenging such ballots to five days after the election. The law would also impose new requirements for those registering and voting on the same day and would allow election observers to move freely about voting locations instead of being confined to a specific area. Republicans argue the bill strengthens North Carolina's elections and helps to prevent fraud. After the break, the U.S. Treasury is estimated to borrow more than a trillion dollars in debt this quarter. The national debt is nearly $33 trillion. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Now back to the Fulton County Jail. NTD's Melina Wisecup is on the ground where she's been tracking this case all week. Melina, tell us about the surrenders and what's next. Good afternoon, Chris. Yeah, so the last of the 19 defendants, Reverend Stephen Lee, did just surrender to the jail, and he did have sort of a last-minute support, which actually allowed him to leave the jail today. As of last night, he wasn't sure if he would be bailed out. So he did speak to his attorney after he left the jail to hear about that experience from last night. We'll show you that in just a moment. But just a quick recap from what happened for former President Trump yesterday. He surrendered here to this jail at 7.30 p.m., not on this side where all of the supporters were right behind me yesterday, but on the other side, which is about half a mile down the road, there was less of a media presence over on that side. Trump was in and out very quickly. He did have his mugshot taken, which he has since posted himself on X, formerly known as Twitter, making his first comeback on the social media platform. Trump is now using this. Of course, they say a photo is worth a thousand words. Trump is now using this to uh, raise campaign dollars. He's already started selling merchandise for this. So it's, it will be interesting to see how both sides of the political spectrum are using this mugshot in the 2024 presidential campaigning. So we're going to show you what former President Trump had to say to reporters about this fourth indictment, as well as that interview we just had with Reverend Stephen Lee's attorney, who is one of those 19 defendants. Take a look. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election. And I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have many people that you've been watching over the years do the same thing, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams or many others. When you uh, have that great freedom to challenge, you have to be able to. Otherwise, you're going to have very dishonest elections. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. And this is one instance, but you have three other instances. It's election interference. As of about 9 o'clock last night, 
that fund had garnered about $4,000 in contributions. When we left Chicago this morning, he was unbelievable. He, he thought the hand of God working through silk had uh, made it so that he could go home today. So as we just mentioned, that last person you just heard was the attorney for Reverend Stephen Lee, who was the last of the 19 defendants to come here and surrender today. His attorney was speaking about how he got last-minute support to be able to be bailed out of the jail. Many of the co-defendants did already have those bail agreements in place, meaning they had a quick booking process in and out. There was one that did not, Harrison Floyd. He stayed in jail overnight, as a matter of fact. Now, so all 19 defendants have surrendered, including former President Trump, as we mentioned. As for Trump's case moving forward, well, he did not try to move his case to federal court yet, which is something we thought we would see, especially after those other former officials such as Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark did file to move their case to federal court on the grounds that they were acting officials at the time that those actions took place. We have not yet seen that come from Trump's lawyers just yet. Now, he, he did replace his lead lawyer just yesterday ahead of surrendering here to the jail, and he also filed a motion to oppose a set October 23rd trial date for one of those co-defendants saying that he wants to separate himself from any such requests in the future. So these are the things we are looking at moving forward. When is that trial date? When will we see the former president come back here to Georgia to make his way to the courtroom for that arraignment? Chris? Incredible. Thank you, Melina. A U.S. military aircraft has crashed near a San Diego Marine Corps air base. One person was on board. Now a search and rescue operation is underway. The FA-18 Hornet crashed in a remote area east of San Diego's Marine Corps Air Station in Miramar. The condition of the pilot is not known. The aircraft crashed on government property. No structures on the ground were damaged. The Hornet is the first U.S. military aircraft designed for all-weather combat. It's not currently in production, but a newer Super Hornet variant is still being made. The Marine Corps began using it in 1983 and the Navy in 1984. The military plans to retire it from service in 2030. The Federal Aviation Administration announced it will invest millions into airports nationwide after a number of near-fatal collisions. Multiple close calls over the past year were confirmed by both the agency and the National Transportation Safety Board. Earlier this year, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg highlighted a rise in mistakes, including those on runways, during plane pushbacks at gates, in control towers, and on flight decks. To address the issue, the FAA will allocate over $120 million to prevent runway incursions and support airport infrastructure projects. Another challenge is the number of fully trained air traffic controllers has decreased by 10% over the past decade, despite a 5% increase in airport traffic. Nearly 400 people are still unaccounted for in Maui County after the devastating wildfires earlier this month. Officials released a validated list of names put together by the FBI. We're releasing this list of 388 names today because we know that it will help with the investigation. But we're also balancing that because we do know that once those names come out, it can and will cause pain for some folks that are affected by this. Police hope it can be used to help identify anyone on the list who is actually accounted for. Officials have said at least 115 people died, making it the deadliest wildfire disaster in the U.S. in more than 100 years. 
crews have searched 100% of the single-story homes in the disaster area. They're now going through multi-story homes and commercial properties. Turning to Michigan, flights are resuming out of Detroit. Roads at the city's largest airport have reopened following flooding yesterday from storms. The tunnels connecting to the McNamara Terminal flooded overnight into Thursday and were closed. The FAA says there are still ground delays at Detroit Metropolitan Wayne County Airport due to the prior ground stop. According to tracking site FlightAware, nearly a fifth of flights originating in Detroit were canceled yesterday. Multiple carriers were affected. Delta, with Detroit as one of its hubs, is hit the hardest with 96 flights scrubbed. More than a trillion dollars. That's how much the U.S. expects to borrow for the current quarter. And TD Business's Don Ma has more on the Department of Treasury's announcement. And here to talk to me is Jarek Giorgino, NTD uh, contributor and risk consultant in the greater LA area. So um, the U.S. Treasury is expecting to borrow more than a trillion dollars of debt in the current quarter. I mean, to me, this is just a huge amount of debt in such a short time. Um, I think a, dis a discussion about debt can be very nuanced and we'll go into more detail later. But first, let me just get, get you um, what you think about this. Are you concerned about, uh, about what's happening? I'm very concerned, Dodd. Our society as a whole did not necessarily have a great example set for them in terms of tone at the top by our federal government. And when it comes to our federal government and its reckless spending policy, the scary part, though, is that the federal government has a printing press. Your average American can't print more money at home and cover their losses. Uh, the U.S. government can. And it does. And it also issues more and more treasury bonds, takes on more and more debt with the public, and sometimes with other countries and at times with our adversaries. It's very concerning. So I want to pose this uh, point. You know, if I'm being fair, um, we, we're spending a lot, uh, but there, there's arguments that fiscal spending and uh, injection of liquidity into the economy could actually keeping the recession that we've been talking about since last year could be keeping the recession at bay. Okay, so <clears throat> that puts inflation completely off to the side and at all costs prioritizes preventing recessions and so forth, printing more money, issuing more debt, injecting more into the money supply. Our country has shouldered itself with an unfathomable amount of debt that may not sit on the shoulders of current generations, but will sit on the shoulders of generations yet born. How do we fix this? Um, you know, what are the solutions? Has, has the ship sailed? Um, <laughs> I think the ship might have sailed, but as a country, we can't think that way. We're Americans. We problem solve. That's what we do. Um, but I don't think the problem solves itself. Uh, we have to solve it. And the only way we can do that is through honest, imprudent discussions about where our money is being spent. It's an issue that I think Americans, per polling from Pew Research and AP and others, are starting to take more seriously and care about. 57% of Americans I saw in a poll care about the national debt as a serious issue. But that's not reflected in the agenda of our lawmakers. All right, very comprehensive discussion today. Thank you so much for your time, Derek. I appreciate it as always, Don. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to next time. When we come back, Republican presidential candidates are missing something, a health care agenda. 
That's according to a former U.S. representative. We'll have her take. And how can those struggling with opioid addiction break free? We'll hear from a few people who every day help addicts recover when we return. Thanks for staying with us. Republicans have forgotten a key issue, health care. That's according to Anne-Marie Burkle, former U.S. representative and former commissioner for the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Let's hear what she has to say. Anne-Marie Burkle, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good morning. Anne-Marie, talk to us about the predicament senior citizens find themselves in regarding the cost of health care and prescription drugs. So and I'm, I'm sure many of your viewers watched the debate last a um, couple nights ago, and there's an ongoing debate in Washington that unfortunately doesn't include the Republicans. They really don't have a health care agenda. Health care, although it's been on the minds of so many Americans, particularly the seniors, was not mentioned in the debate. So my concern is, is that the Republicans in the Senate and in the House, they're not far behind the Senate, they're really defaulting to Bernie Sanders' agenda and how we'll move forward with health care in this country. And why do you think that is? That's a great question. Um, I, I feel that on one level, they haven't taken the time to figure out what the agenda is for health care, although we know it's on the minds, minds of the American people. But beyond that, I think they don't understand what Bernie Sanders is proposing. Now, Bernie Sanders, as you know, is an avowed socialist, and he is trying to get towards a single-payer system in this country. So anything he does is going to be towards that end. And so it's perplexing to me why the Republicans would support anything that he proposes. Now, how does inflation factor into the situation senior citizens are facing? So senior citizens, I mean, for the most part, they're on a fixed income. And so for them, when their energy prices go up, <clears throat> excuse me, the gasoline for their car, the food prices go up, and then on top of that, their health care costs go up, both the deductible, the out-of-pocket, as well as the drugs, that becomes a substantial problem for them, and it is on their minds greatly. And let me just talk a minute about what uh, Bernie Sanders is proposing, because when you talk about the cost of drugs— what he is proposing will increase the cost of drugs. And I'll pause here because, so the viewers understand, Bernie Sanders is the chairman of the Health Committee in the Senate, so health policy comes out of his committee. He's proposed legislation that would significantly limit what a PBM does. And I, I'll explain what that is. That's a pharmacy benefit manager. But it is the entity that negotiates for your health care plan with pharma to get the cost of drugs lower in your health care plan. And so it's estimated that a PBM saves each person in this country about $1,000 a year in, in drug costs. Understood. And what proposals do you think senior citizens would like to hear from Republican candidates? So if I were advising one of the presidential candidates or someone in, in the Senate, I would say you've got to really be focused on the patient 
and free market uh, solutions to these problems. We want competition. And so we need to have uh, really a modernization of the FDA and the way they handle patents so that drugs can come off of the patent and become generics. Anne-Marie Burkle, thank you again. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. There's hope behind the scenes of the opioid crisis. That's according to recovered addict Roger Garrison. In the first part of our two-part series on opioid addiction, he told us his story of recovery. In this part, we'll learn what Roger and others say and do to help addicts. Once you get clean because you want to get clean, then everything else automatically is going to get better. That's really the way it works. I think the very first thing is, is accepting that you have an addiction, whatever that may be, and then putting, formulating a game plan to get well. The voices of those helping addicts recover are inspiring, but what do they do to help? I think the, the greatest uh, way that, that an addict is, is, pers is being personal is a one-on-one -on -one situation where you're at a facility, uh, you're at a 12-step meeting, and you can obviously see someone needs help. They need advice. They need someone to tell them that there is hope, that you do recover, and you can't have a life without drugs. And what about the drug rehab facilities we hear so much about? We spoke with Caitlin Snitchler, the program director at Chop Tank Recovery in Greensboro, Maryland. So Chop Tank is a 3.1 level of care, um, which really lets people come in after they've been in treatment um, for inpatient level of care, where they can get kind of a step in between going from um, inpatient level of care to then independent or sober living on their own. And it's really kind of building that trust in themselves and then also with the staff that are still there to help guide them and help make sure that they're continuing their care that they had already started. The people who live there, you know, they're living together for quite some time. So they become almost like their own like subculture of them with themselves of being able to support and talk things out. Three million people in the U.S. have had or currently suffer from opioid addiction. But despite that, those on the front of the addiction war all have messages of hope. That's where the hope is, is that you see it every day. There are people who are doing well that are really fighting hard for other people to believe that if I could do it, you could do it. If I've been to prison and had to go through drug court five times or whatever their story is, you can do it too. When you do come through difficult times, when you do come through your addiction and you've found help and you are living in recovery, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful experience. Some say recovered addicts like John and Roger are the hope behind the scenes of the opioid crisis. Roger's response? We are. I don't know. We are the hope. We're here doing this. We're carrying a message. We've been through a lot. We've gotten through horrible times. Yet here we sit. My life is great. Yes, that's the hope. An opioid manufacturer is backing down on its promise to pay $1.7 billion to those harmed by the opioid crisis. Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals is one of the largest generic opioid manufacturers in the United States. Previously, the manufacturer agreed to pay the money out over eight years to state and local governments and people who had filed lawsuits against the company. But in a regulatory filing this week, Mallinckrodt said it has filed for bankruptcy yet again, the second time in three years. The company is asking to now make a final payment of just $250 million. That request still needs to be approved by the bankruptcy court. 
The Justice Department filed the suit against the company in 2019, charging that it knowingly paid illegal kickbacks as part of an elaborate scheme to make millions of dollars and stick taxpayers with the bill. When we come back, over 10 years after Superstorm Sandy devastated New York with flooding, a protection plan arrives, but some experts say it's not enough. And Europe is cracking down on disruptive demonstrations by environmental activists. It's seeking to criminalize extreme protest actions. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. All 19 defendants in Trump's Georgia case have surrendered at the Fulton County Jail. A historic mugshot of the former president went viral on social media and on his campaign website. An election watchdog is accusing Pennsylvania of violating federal election rules. The state allegedly isn't requiring IDs from overseas voters when they register to vote. Maui officials made public the names of nearly 400 people still missing. Police hope this will help identify anyone on the list who is accounted for. The search is now turning to multi-story homes and commercial properties. Dollar Tree is taking a defensive approach to shoplifting. The CEO's new plan includes no longer stocking certain items at stores where they tend to be stolen. Other plans include moving some items behind checkout counters and putting some items behind locks. More companies are trying to protect themselves from shoplifting and organized retail crime. Kohl's said it was using cables to secure products in stores and only offering in-store testing of beauty products. It's also having more staff in fitting rooms and having more workers near the front doors. Target and Walmart have also spoken out about the rise in crime recently. A National Retail Federation survey shows that retail outlets suffered $94.5 billion in losses in 2021, primarily from theft. Speaking of theft, a California man was detained for stealing $1.8 million in luxury items from a hotel room. He then allegedly sold the stolen goods to a Florida buyer. The victims were from Brazil and staying at the Peninsula Beverly Hills Hotel in California for a fashion event. They said they didn't know the suspect, Jobson DeCastro. DeCastro took an Uber to the hotel and allegedly tricked hotel staff into giving him a key to the victim's room. He made multiple Uber trips to the hotel and also charged food to the victim's room account when he ate at the hotel bar. Authorities say he messaged a buyer for the stolen goods over Instagram. The buyer's store was located in Miami, and DeCastro allegedly brought the stolen items there. Authorities tracked him using GPS data from his Uber rides and via Apple AirTags located in one of the suitcases. Authorities also discovered DeCastro is being investigated for a separate hotel theft. It's been over 10 years since Hurricane Sandy wrecked havoc on the East Coast. The question of how to best protect the New York-New Jersey harbor from flooding is still under debate. Here's the story. In the fall of 2012, Superstorm Sandy crashed into the coastline of New York and New Jersey. With a storm surge so massive, it ripped homes off their foundations, shattered boardwalks, devastated subway tracks and tunnels, and blacked out lower Manhattan. It took the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers 
10 years to produce a protection plan to defend the area from the next such weather event. The Corps recommended a robust and complex system of barriers, flood walls, berms, and levees, with a price tag of $52.6 billion. It's the most ambitious plan in the Corps' history. The project is set to go before the U.S. Congress for approval. But a coalition of residents, environmentalists, and climate activists say the plan is focused on preventing the last crisis, not the next one. One of the biggest problems with the plan is that it started out with too narrow a focus. So when the Corps does a project, they can do a single hazard project or a multi-hazard project. And they started this project as single hazard, only looking at storm surge impacts. Tracy Brown is the president of Riverkeeper, a nonprofit aimed at protecting the Hudson River and New York's drinking water. What it needs to be is a multi-hazard plan because in addition to having storm surges, we have these heavy rain events where we are seeing loss of life and incredible damage to property. We have sea level rise, creating monthly flooding in more and more communities now. So if we don't start with the multi-hazard approach and say this is what we're gonna address, we're just gonna end up with a hammer that hits one nail. And we have many nails and many challenges. Some of the proposal envisions walls that might sever New York City residents from the rivers around them. Andrew Kruchkovich is with Columbia University's Climate School. In Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Long Island City, Queens, and then also on the lower west side of Manhattan along the Hudson River, what's proposed are approximately 12 to 20 foot high seawalls. So this will change our experience uh, with waterways with the coastal areas of New York City, areas that have really brought the city together, both for New Yorkers and also, also millions of visitors as well. And the challenges are changing. In September 2021, Hurricane Ida delivered flash flooding in the city and further upstate that killed at least 26 people without a storm surge. Other threats include wildfire smoke from Canada and summer heat waves. Activists say there's still time to change the Army Corps of Engineers' plan for New York, but they need to listen to locals. So we're at a moment now where our local leaders, the governors of New York and New Jersey, can say to the Corps, we don't approve this plan. We want something different. We want multi-hazards. Let's continue to work on it. Let's partner and get something better that then goes to Congress. We're not seeing any indication yet that that's going to happen, and that's where we're trying to get the message out and call for our local representatives to come to the table. European authorities have had enough of environmentalists' attention-grabbing tactics. Multiple countries are cracking down on disruptive or damaging forms of protest. They've thrown soup at a Van Gogh painting, glued their hands to roads, blocked traffic, sprayed paint, and cut off oil pipes. What is worth more? Art or life? Thousands of activists across Europe demanding urgent government action against climate change have been met with a crackdown in multiple countries. Lawmakers in Germany, France and Britain are turning up the heat to make actions like this illegal. France and Britain have passed new surveillance and detention laws, with Britain making it illegal to lock or glue yourself to property. Deputy Speaker, it is as always... Activists say they turned to direct action after the failure of other protest strategies. Deliberately inconveniencing their fellow citizens. 
Police confirmed that France has used an anti-terrorism unit to question some climate activists. The governments in Germany and Britain say the response to the protests is aimed at preventing damaging criminal actions. The French government declined to comment for this story, but has previously said the state must be able to combat what it calls radicalization. Policing data shows that in Berlin alone, more than 4,500 incidents have been registered against the last generation and extinction rebellion groups, causing police to spend hundreds of thousands of hours on them. German states are also widely using preventative detention to stop people from protesting. Activist anger has only been fueled by recent heat waves, wildfires and droughts. They say they're outraged by the lack of any urgent response. For a symbolic one euro, Dutch brewer Heineken sold off its entire operation in Russia. That was despite cumulative losses that may top $300 million. Russian manufacturer Arnest Group is taking over 100% of Heineken's Russian shares, along with seven breweries. As part of the deal, Arnest Group will provide all 1,800 employees with employment guarantees over the next three years. Heineken's CEO said the purchase allows the company to exit Russia in a responsible manner. The brewer initiated the withdrawal process in March 2022. A slew of multinational companies were seeking to pull out of Russia after its invasion of Ukraine, but many faced challenges like punitive taxes by the Kremlin. After the break, Beyond Technique classical Chinese dance emphasizes traditional culture and self-cultivation. We hear more from a judge for the NTD classical Chinese dance competition. A Russian designer makes traditional headdresses with a modern twist. Her glamorous creations are particularly popular among fashion photographers and beauty contestants. And a surprise visit to Times Square by tennis superstar Novak Djokovic. He had some free tips for young tennis fans. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Thanks for staying with us. NTD's 10th International Classical Chinese Dance Competition is on the horizon. We had the chance to interview one of the judges of this prestigious event. Let's hear what she is looking for from participants. Zhang Mingwei is an expert and examiner of classical Chinese dance. What is required of a dance performer is that your body can speak through your art to express inner feelings. So that's a very high standard. She explains that to excel in this ancient art form, dancers should embrace the 5,000 years of Chinese culture and be able to tell stories of history and people. To perform well in classical Chinese dance, one must love Chinese culture and strive to enhance their understanding of it. Zhang says she's looking for more than just great technique. Although classical Chinese dance requires basic skills like leaps, flips, and other difficult tumbling techniques, it's nothing like gymnastics. We are not gymnastics, we're acrobatics. Dancing is created to portray characters. That is, only when a dancer is both highly cultivated and skillful can they achieve a balance of strength and gentleness in their performances. 
2023, the 10th NTD The NTD dance competition promotes authentic traditional dancing featuring pure goodness and beauty. Zhang says that dancers must improve themselves as a person before they can display beauty from the inside out. If a person's mind is righteous, then the things he chooses and the way he learns will also be righteous. Being a dancer is like self-cultivation. That means you have to let go of the negatives and highlight the positives so you can become better. Finally over. Classical Chinese dance was widely introduced to the West by Shen Yun Performing Arts. Artists from Shen Yun will compete with participants from around the world at upcoming events. Participating in the competition is an opportunity to improve. But I think these dancers should be very experienced. So I'm looking forward to seeing them. This event is a very meaningful way to let the world and more people know about Chinese classical dance and Chinese culture. The competition is open to the public on September 9th and 10th at Purchase College in New York. A Russian designer is making traditional headdresses with a modern twist. Now her glamorous creations are featured at beauty contests. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the fashion statement. This Russian headdress is called a kokoshnik. Siberian designer Olga Pashkina has been producing the accessory since 2016. Her designs provide a 21st century twist on tradition. I am often criticized for the historical inaccuracy of this headgear. I would like to say that my kokoshniks, they are more fantasy, designer ones. I, as an artist, see it this way. Well, in general, people get to understand that this is a kokoshnik, although it is not historically true. Pashkina's kokoshniks are particularly popular among fashion photographers and beauty contestants. Some of her inspiration comes from other works of art. Since I have a degree in arts, I know the paintings of Russian masters, Andrei Vesnatov, Mikhail Vrubel. I always liked the way they depict women in kokoshniks, and I even had a kokoshnik of a snow maiden, which was very reminiscent of Vrubel's painting The Swan Princess. Embroidery and lace are her favorite materials. Her kokoshniks cost between $400 and $500. Here you can see that I sign each pattern as to what year, for what event it was made. Of course, I first try it on myself, and then I make such a kokoshnik according to this pattern. Beauty contest participant Anna Barantseva's kokoshnik is part of a witch costume. My headdress is splendid. It's such an incredible kokoshnik. I saw it on the internet. I found the girl who owns it now. We made a very serious logistical plan to bring it from Kemerova City, and now I have it on my head. Contestant Ekaterina Ivanova ordered her bluebird costume from Pashkina after seeing the artist's work. Olga Pashkina approaches everything creatively and uses beautiful, interesting materials. That is, this is not just a costume that is made according to a sketch. It is a costume in which the soul is invested. Now, fashionistas and designers will have to determine if the traditional headdress is really back in vogue. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Free tennis tips from world number two Novak Djokovic. The tennis superstar played on a pop-up court in Times Square as he prepared for next week's U.S. Open. The event was part of a campaign for a hydration brand that Djokovic has partnered with. Some youngsters were seen playing with the 23-time Grand Slam winner. 
Djokovic is a frightening prospect heading into the U.S. Open after defeating world number one Carlos Alcaraz in Cincinnati last week. If you're trying to stay cool, Sunday might be the perfect day for a movie. About 3,000 theaters across the country are offering $4 tickets for National Cinema Day. AMC Theaters and Regal Movies are participating and offering discounted popcorn. It's part of a promotion sponsored by the National Cinema Foundation. All movies out in theaters are included in the deal. Last year's inaugural event saw 8 million people head to the movies. To buy tickets or to see if your theater is participating, go to nationalcinemaday.org. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.